Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. If I wrote a play and no one ever produced it, say the WP was like, we hate your show, it's not going up, eh, so I wrote a play then. What's, always ask yourself, what's the worst that can happen? But then, unlike other people, do it anyway. Because a lot of people go, oh, that's the worst thing, then I'm not doing it. Who cares? We're all going to die. Just do it. Who cares? Nothing bad can happen to you. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is a day where I am very, very pumped and excited because I am sitting across from Lisa Lampanelli and I'm sitting here at the WP Theater at 76th and Broadway on the Upper West Side where she is starring, producing, writing, getting water for people, who knows, doing her own show, the critically acclaimed Stuffed. First of all, before I start, I wanna thank all of you. You guys have been amazing. I can't believe how supportive you guys have been. I try to give you a lot of great content that you can share and learn from and the guests have just been amazing and today i can guarantee you will be no exception before i sat down i hugged lisa lampanelli and you know when you hug somebody sometimes you feel this energy running through you like oh my god i think i have to shower and then you hug somebody and it's like ah everything's gonna be okay we're gonna have a great time and that's how you feel when you hug lisa lampanelli if you are out there listening and you have hugged Lisa Lampanelli, chances are you could be (laughs) (laughs) African-American. No, I'm kidding. But I look at Lisa, and this is what I want to share with you guys about myself as a manager. I see something in people. I feel like I can shake people's hands, and sometimes I know what's going to happen with people or how it's going to happen. And I'm sitting across from somebody who I never gave the opportunity in my mind to think that they could create magic in this business. And I would go to the clubs in New York City, specifically Stand Up New York, which is right around the corner from here at 78th and Broadway. And every time Lisa Lampanelli was on the lineup, she would have the best set of the night. Didn't matter if she was on last in front of 23 people on a check spot or if she was going on fifth at the prime time of the show. Every single show, just complete devastation. Imbombable. I've seen her hundreds of times. I have never seen her bomb. I have never seen her do poorly. I have never seen her not give 100%. Yet I, when I watched her, thought to myself, I don't think this person is doing the kind of material that will work. And the reason being, Lisa Lampanelli was doing something that was sort of, I'd say, stereotypical for the 70s and 80s hosts of comedy clubs all around the country, where 
It's called a spritzer, a person who can seamlessly talk to anybody in the crowd or do a joke and identify a certain ethnicity. No holds barred. It didn't matter if you were gay, straight, fucked armadillos, if you were black, Asian, Indian, Jewish, Italian, you were not safe. And her material centered around the formula and the foundation of taking the premise of an ethnicity or a group of people and then riding that premise as far as she could, as long as she could. It's something I've talked about many times before is comedy is like a wet washcloth. You take the premise, whatever it is. How you doing, sir? The black man in the corner. And then you wring the washcloth once and you tell that first joke. I'm surprised you got here on time, sir. And that's the first joke. And then the water comes out and you think there's no more water in the washcloth. And then you get something. What'd you order there, sir? Oh, that's not chicken fingers. Oh, what a surprise. And then you just keep ringing and ringing and ringing. And with the Rolodex in Lisa Lampanelli's brain, she wrung every single concept to where there was not a drop left. And when you thought there was nothing left, her next line, maybe her 13th line on the person would destroy harder than the first line. How many people are as good the 13th time as they are the first time? And it was amazing to see. But as I watched, I thought to myself, because I was working with people like Chappelle, you know, people who were doing more of the written constructive joke. And I watched her and I thought to myself, how can I find people whose material can go on any late night show and how can I take this person with my talent and their talent to the next level? And when I watched Lisa, I thought to myself, I don't think I can be successful. And I don't know if she's going to be able to do what I think that she's capable of doing if she were to make a few adjustments. And I don't think I'm the kind of person to tell somebody to change. I want people to stay in the lane they are and be successful. And throughout her journey, I have always been in touch with her. And I think she'll know and agree. I have always run into her and said, I was wrong. And I have always wanted to hug her and I have always wanted to embrace her. And this is where I get emotional. I always want to support her and I always want to praise her. And I'm so, so proud for everything that she does and everything that she's done that has blown people the fuck away. I am at my television or at the taping cheering in the back. And I feel no remorse except the fact that I failed as a manager and I didn't see what she saw in herself that she could do in all these different lanes. And this play here at this theater is a tremendous example of what this person was capable of creating that maybe I didn't see based on the kind of comedy that she was doing. And if you look at Lisa Lampanelli and you look at the kind of career she's had, it's just incredible. She took her brand of humor, she branded herself Queen of Mean. Now, I don't necessarily agree with the Queen of Mean because when you meet Lisa Lampanelli, the most huggable and lovable person you could ever meet. Throughout that, she parlayed that into roast. And let me tell you something. When you do a roast, everybody on that roast is happy. They're backstage. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Have a good set. There can be only one winner. And I'm looking at the fucking winner. Somebody who they had closed shows over and over and over again. Then you're asked to be the master of ceremonies of a roast. The most important role in the roast you don't get asked that if you're doing a shitty job. So she's parlayed that into specials, albums. She's had development deals and shows that have been put together with Jim Carrey. You think Jim Carrey wants to sit down with any comic? I think there's only one stand-up comedian that he's ever wanted to do a deal with in his entire career, and that's Lisa Lampanelli. And so I think the message here is twofold. Number one, don't be short-sighted. 
don't judge a book by its cover because there's always something there. There's layers to everything. And on the other side, use everything you can, every fiber of your body, everything you have creatively in your brain, because there's never going to be a situation where you can't do something and challenge yourself and get to the next level. And when I look at the person across from me, I tell you honestly, if you do that, you will have the kind of career that Lisa Lampanelli has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Harry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day... Instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. When you're talking in that cold open about, you know, how you were short-sighted, I think I was too. I think the fact is when people can't see their own power, that's, we, we each didn't see our own power. I, you couldn't see how you could make my career work, you know, in a way that you thought you knew how. I didn't see that I could do anything but insult comedy. So we were both just acknowledging our limits and at the time those limits were what we had so i don't think that's a bad thing so i didn't think i could be anything but an insult comic until i got to about five six years ago when i decided to do a little more uh, you know exploring talking more about me and more about my issues and things like that that resulted in the play and more intimate stand-up so you have nothing to feel bad about because we if people just don't know what they're capable of in the long run i can't believe that it was only five years ago that you thought to yourself, I can do other things. Yeah. No, because I love insult comedy. Like I always said, I'm one of the two or three living insult comics and Rickles is going to die pretty soon. So bye. I'll be one of the only two. So it's funny. Like I just view it as a huge badge of honor because you can't do it unless you're really good. Like you can't be an insult comic unless you're not racist, unless you're not sexist or um, homophobic. You can't do it. You can't make fun of everybody unless you really love them. So I always thought that was a badge of honor, which it is. But then I'm like, oh, but maybe I can go deeper inside and talk about things that are more important. And then five, six years ago, I was like, okay, now I'm ready. So you're ready when you're ready. That's what I always say. Got it. And so there's a few things that are very rare, and you might disagree with me. What's not rare is a blue comic, a comic who does material that's off color. Right. But what's really rare is the to the hundredth power blue comic, like Mm -hmm. a dice clay. Mm -hmm. So I look at insult comedy and the ability to do horrifyingly edgy, dirty comedy as Mm -hmm. being the two lanes of comedy that are the most rare. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And insult comedy, I think it is rare because you have to have a warm place inside. You have to have a warmth that people can see. Like when you see Rickles, you want him to make fun of you. When uh, people come see me, I'm so grateful because they'll write me beforehand. Hey, we're eight gay guys. Look for us. We're going to, we want you to make fun of us. So I think if you're not a warm person, they're not buying it. And I think with dirty comedy, what's interesting is that those guys, they're likable, but they have the bad boy likable look on their face, not the Rickles and you lovable. Right. Like you're not skeeved watching them talk about sex. Like there's some guys who you look at and you go, please never talk about sex. You're (laughs) freaking disgusting. I remember there was this comic years ago. I don't know if he's dead yet, but he was about 400 pounds and he wouldn't talk about 
ugh, licking you know what. Yeah. And I would be like, please, God, don't make me picture that. <laughs> it's just you kind of got to know what you can get away with in this business. Like Dice knew he could get away with being really edgy and having women still like him and not turn on him. That's the most amazing thing about those extra level, dark, dirty comics like Dice. I mean, there's more women than men that come to see them. Yeah. And it's the most degrading stuff sometimes <laughs> because i think they know it's a parody i think audiences are smarter than we think black people and interracial couples and latinos and believe it or not filipinos for some reason love me i don't know how that happened <laughs> i have one filipino joke but they respond to it i gay men gay women i think they all know that it's a joke that it's a parody of someone racist like I learned from that Rickles album. I never heard the Rickles album, Hello Dummy, until like eight years into my career when people said, oh, you remind me of Rickles. So I'm like, oh, I got to check out this record. You used to have that framed on my wall. It's, I do. It's vinyl, right? So he has one joke that I always talk about, which is thank God for Mexicans or there wouldn't be any filth. <laughs> and I go, that's the perfect model for a joke that you know is so ridiculous that he can't possibly mean it. So if I'm saying to a black guy, um, you know, black guy, it's called a book. Like when we talk about a book, that means the thing the judge throws at you. <laughs> you know, so you know it's so ridiculous that you can't really think every black guy went to jail. You know, so I think you have to be so dumb. You have to create a dumb character like Archie Bunker, like Norman Lear did. So my character, or Larry the Cable Guy character, you got to create a dumb character, and it takes, I think, brains to create that. You know what's interesting is that I never, ever thought of your character as dumb yeah good well you're smart and if what, what's fine what's wild is like i think some people get it for the right reasons which i love like yourself or some people get it for the wrong reasons meaning oh she has a she's actually a racist and i'm like how do i get around that and a boyfriend i had once said to me you can't basically you just got to do comedy that you can look yourself in the mirror for at the end of the day and say this is who i answer to is me you know, Cher said, you know, I only answer to two people, God and myself. And frankly, I only answer to one, me, because I'm not sure God really gives a crap. <laughs> so I just think it's like you do what you can look in a mirror about at the end of the day. Tell our audience the first time you did a show and somebody didn't understand the concept of what you were doing and they took something very, very personally. And not only did they share it from the audience, mm. but they shared it backstage with you. Well, well, three things come to mind. Audience members is, uh, I was playing at Stand Up New York years ago before I really, maybe eight years in, and I was just like developing in New York. You hear that? Eight years in, I was just developing. Yeah. It takes, I always say it takes seven years to even know what the hell you're doing. And I started at 30, so I had a lot of patience. I was like, well, I'm going to make it when I'm about 50, which is fine. So um, anyway, so doing a show, and I remember... I was calling some guy gay because he was really good looking because there were no gay guys in there. And I'm like, oh, you're good looking. You have to be a fag, right? So I'm making fun of him. and He's gorgeous looking. And at the end of the show, he comes up to me and he's in a wheelchair. And he said, well, why didn't you make fun of that I'm in a wheelchair? If you were really brave, you would have done that. And I go, you know what? I didn't see those wheels, but he's right. So from then on, I started including disabled people, you know, autistic kids, this and that because everyone wants to be included. I've even had autistic women of autistic kids come up to me saying, thank you for having a sense of humor about our kids because no one does. So I think this guy understood that inclusion is what is needed in a show like this. Now, before you go into this other two, I want to share a story with you. When I was starting in Boston, there was an amazing comedian named Mike Donovan. Oh, sure. One of his classic bits was about family feud and Richard Dawson, the old host, being sure. the master of herpes because he used to <laughs> kiss, kiss people everybody. all the time. And he did a parody of the show with the Mongoloid family. <laughs> and something you eat with a spoon. I'm sorry. No, not broccoli. Right, and he would just right. keep going and going and going and ring. Oh, look at their heads bobbing up and down there. Right. And it would always kill. And I remember I see these people walking out and there's two boys, maybe 22 young men, and they're holding their mother in the middle and their mother appears like she can't walk and she's crying hysterically and she stops in front of Mike Donovan mm -hmm. and she says, how dare you? Mm -hmm. How dare you do that? My son 
is mentally retarded. Mm -hmm. You should be ashamed of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I saw the look on his face. I'll never forget it. It was just awful. And I thought to myself, well, sometimes when you do this stuff in a routine, that it can be very damaging. But when you do it as an insult comic, sometimes people will laugh at you more and they'll embrace it more. Well, I think, too, it just depends on the individual in the audience. I actually, I've never apologized for a joke. I've been doing this 26, 27 years until about a month ago because I'll never apologize to a group. I'm like, you know what, really? No, you don't deserve an apology. But to an individual, if they really have hurt feelings, I will have an intelligent conversation with them. Um, a few weeks ago, this was great. I, I love this because I love being real with people now that I'm willing to be more vulnerable. Um, I noticed this old guy during the show was just laughing at everything because I was insulting the hell out of him about old. And then I started doing this big, long routine about autistic kids. How like I hate autistic kids because they're not full-fledged retards and you got to commit. You want me to fucking adopt you, you better have a goddamn bucket of uh, dro- drooling into a helmet. So I'm making all these autistic jokes. And I noticed this old guy... He didn't yell. He didn't walk out. He didn't look offended. He just went blank. And I go, okay, something happened here. So I had to interrupt myself. I go, Ken, I go, I can't help because, you know, I had found out his name. Okay, I go, Ken, I can't help but notice you shut down like a little while ago. What happened? In the middle of mm-hmm. your show. Sure, because I'm vulnerable. I'll, I'll, you know, talk to somebody. And he goes, yeah, that kind of just got to me a little bit. And I sensed he had probably adopted a kid or something. And I go, you know what, Ken? I go, I've had people yell at me. I've had people walk out. You were a gentleman. You sat there like a man. You didn't yell at me. You didn't storm out. You didn't act like a little bitch. So for the first time in 27 years, I'm going to say, I'm sorry for that joke. If it hurt your feelings, I apologize. So come backstage and we'll talk about it after the show. So he came back with his wife. He was a huge fan. And he said he had adopted two autistic kids, but years ago before people were kind about autism and like threw things at the kids and yelled at them and stuff. And I said, well, my heart goes out to you. I think you did the right thing. I said, and I do apologize for that. And we bonded. So I love that vulnerability. But like I said, it's just because he was nice. All you have to do is say, I'd like to have a discussion about this. You know, at the Beacon Theater about six months ago, a guy had a, a similar issue, but he was a little bitch about it. He stood up, he started yelling. And I said, okay, first of all, you don't like jokes about retarded people? I go, how about you take offense at black jokes, Hispanic jokes, gay jokes? Didn't see you get pissed off about any of those, you fucking racist. I said, so guess what? You can get the fuck out now. Get your money back. I'll pay it back. I don't care. I said, you're not worth it. I said, see ya. And the audience was loving it because he was so disruptive. And he left and I go, you know why he was mad? Because he's fucking retarded. <laughs> so like if a guy's not a gentleman or a woman's not nice about it, I'm not going to talk to you. But... If you're a gentleman, I'll talk to you. Is there anything that you've said on stage that when you take yourself out of your body Mm -hmm. and think of you were in the other situation that you would be offended by? I mean, you know, if a joke's not good, I always said at these roasts, you know, if a joke's stupid and not well-crafted, I'm just like, Like, it's just not funny. So I'm offended you didn't take more time to write a funnier joke about me. But, like, I like good jokes about myself. Like, my favorite one is when Artie Lang. Remember when Artie was just at his fattest and most heroin-looking gray skin, and he went up on a roast, and he goes, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, hey, aren't you Lisa Lampanelli? <laughs> and I still think it is the funniest joke ever done about me because it required thought. So at the roast, I would always be like, oh, try a little harder, Larry King. Try a little harder, Comedy Central staff writers who are writing for celebrity. You know, so I never mind a joke if it's well done, you know, and I learned it pretty early on from the guy I talk about in my play. I talk about an old boyfriend of mine. I don't know if you remember. He was not really on comedy radar. Big Frank D'Amico. He was this 400 pound comic. He was rapid fire. That was a boyfriend of yours. Yeah. And I learned to do comedy fast like him. Was that the guy who did the material that skeeved you out about? No, thank God. No, because he was very handsome, actually. And women loved Frank. He was a handsome 400 pound guy. This other guy was one of those fat guys who's all armpits and skin tags like a Chris Christie. (laughs) Nobody wants to see that. But Big Frank was like, you know, he, he was rapid fire. And that's how I learned to do comedy and do jokes that were funny and cutting edge, but didn't really hurt people's feelings. Do you know what I mean? Like, they, if I say to a fat guy in the front, 
sir, you look in a great mood. I'm surprised because the all-you-could-eat buffet closed an hour ago. It's he's not going to really probably go home and kill himself over being fat. <laughs> I mean, you know, at some point you just got to go. If I offend you that much, you could talk to me about it. Write me a note, whatever. Or that's your issue. I got to answer to just me. So you just said one of my first boyfriends was Frank D'Amico. Yeah. He was 400 pounds. Yeah. I always like a guy who made me look skinny. No lie. I was 230 some pounds at the time. And I, he always also had swagger. And, you know, he had that masculine tough guy mafia thing. Fake mafia, of course. He was connected to a fork. You know, that's about all he was connected <laughs> to. But, yeah, he was one of my first boyfriends. I really loved working with him because I was like, he wasn't famous or anything. But I learned a lot watching how to capture an audience. Tell me something that comedians told you along the way that made you cry. I remember one time there was no one at the cellar at that table. And this was like one of my first weeks. And Lisa's talking about a table upstairs as you go up the stairs from the comedy cellar. There's the Olive Tree Cafe, which is the place where the comedians hang out. And there's a bar as you walk up. And right to the right is a table where Esty, the person who runs and has been such a mainstay there, sits with a bunch of comedians. Sometimes she's not there. And a right. bunch of comedians sit down. And it's a rite of passage. You sit down. And you talk serious stuff, but then there's times when people just shit on everybody. Yeah, and I, I just remove myself from it. Because I think you do sh should remove yourself if you don't feel good. Because I didn't want to spar with anybody. I always used to love sitting there because I love when people shit on me. Yeah, but you don't, maybe you are thicker skin. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really sensitive. I'm like way sensitive. I mean, clearly it's like a Rickles thing where you're such a mush off stage. That's why you do what you do on stage. But... I just remember once when Patrice uh, came up to me, there was no one at the cellar, and he said to me, he sat down, and he was asking me some advice about some girlfriend at the time, and I was pretty good with advice, with stuff like that. And I go, yeah, I think you should really, and we have like this hour-long discussion. He's like, yeah, thanks. So the next day I come in, all those guys are there, and I go, hi, Patrice. And he goes, look, just because we talk once doesn't mean we're fucking friends get lost. And like the tears spring to my eyes, like, of course. And I'm just like, uh-huh. You know, and you just like leave. And I'm just like, oh my God, that's so shocking to me. And it's like bullying, which I hate that word. And I hate like, oh, we're getting bullied. But it's like, oh my God, this wasn't real what we just experienced for an hour the day before. I remember once I was sitting there with a guy who I thought was kind of nice. I forget his name, but um, he had always, I had lost a bunch of weight and he always made me feel like I looked decent. Like he, he would be always, hey, you look nice tonight. Like a really nice guy. He wasn't performing at the cellar yet but he was trying so we're sitting there just talking normal and he goes yeah you look great he goes but man you got some old ass looking hands and i go oh my like it's just comes so far out of nowhere you know what it is when it comes out of nowhere it hurts you more if you have a mother who's yelled at you for 40 years straight you're not even affected by it anymore but when it comes from a weird source that you thought was nice you're like holy shit and I remember even like Tony Rock, he'll never remember this because it's such pussy stuff anyway with me. Like I'm hurt very easily. He was doing a spot at the cellar, or at, the, at the comic strip. He went up right after me and I was, that night I was sick, which is also makes you overly sensitive. I think I had strep throat or something, but you never miss a spot. No, you never miss a spot. Yeah, I would never because you got your, you know, you might get discovered that night. So I had on like sweatpants and something and I was like barely keeping it together. And he just within earshot as I got off the stage, go ham for Lisa Lampanelli. Why is always fat women are the only one who wears sweats? And I was like, I just got off stage. I got in my car and I just start crying. And so I like I go down to the cellar and I know I have to see him again because of the fucking you have to do those eight spots a night. And I'm like, oh, my God. And he, he'll never know this. But the thing is. I don't even think it was bad hearted. I don't know what it was, well, but it just everything hurts you when you're vulnerable, when you're sick or lonely or tired. They always say that thing in AA is hungry, angry, lonely, tired. You don't. You're very vulnerable when you're those four things. And I was usually one of them. But what's fascinating sitting across from you, it could be argued that your career has been made out of bullying. You created the right. character of a bully. Right. And what if there's people in the crowd that are tired, mm -hmm. sick? It's not like you're Dan Whitney mm -hmm. as Larry the Cable Guy. Right. You're Lisa Lampanelli 
mm-hmm. as Lisa Lampanelli right. talking like Lisa Lampanelli on stage as Lisa Lampanelli talks in the tone off stage. Well, actually, that's that part's not true. I don't talk. If you watch me talk now to you, uh-huh. it's way different than the on stage thing. You know, it's very, you know, even tempered. It's really even keel. I mean, it's a heightened, heightened, heightened version of myself. But also, I know how to tell if an audience member's having fun. If I see two guys in the front and I call them gay and they look uncomfortable, I find a reason to jump to somebody else quick. So when you look back at all your shows that you've done, do you feel like, well, there's a percentage of the audience that is always going to be hurt? No, because I think they know what they're coming into. Meaning, that thing from Tony hit me out of nowhere because we weren't friends. We were hardly speaking. Um, because none of those guys spoke to me. So if we had been friends, like right now, like my opener could say, oh yeah, my opener goes up now and he goes, don't worry, Lisa looks great after her weight loss, but don't worry, audience, she's still a raging cunt. <laughs> We're friends, of course I'm going to like like that. If, and, or if not, he'd be fired. The thing is, it's if you're not friends with somebody, that's why the roasts work when you appear to be friends with somebody. I hardly ever make fun of anybody I'm not friends with. Like on a roast, if I don't like you, like if I hate you, I'm not doing any jokes about you. Like, I just avoid it because I'm like, people are going to tell I don't like them. You can tell with the undertone of the voice, you know, what's in your heart. But like, for instance, there was a girl in the audience about, God, God, four or five years ago. And I was calling her skinny and this and that because she was really tiny and I still had the weight on. But and she was really laughing. But then I noticed that she literally had to have been anorexic because she I could see every bone in her neck, every bone in her rib cage. And I turned it around on myself because I go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm enforcing her anorexia. Let me turn it around. And I go, boy, I wish I looked like you. I go, me, fat, blah, blah, blah. And we did a bunch of fat jokes. And after the show, I made sure and found her and said, did you have fun? And she goes, oh, it was great. And she's hugging me. She goes, you made me feel so good. And I was like, thank God. So I go, there's a chance I'll hurt someone. But guess what? I do my freaking best not to. Like if somebody looks uncomfortable, I'm leaving. I'm going to this guy who looks secure in his gayness or whatever it is do you know what i mean so i do my best we all did our best those guys at the cellar did their best they're guys who couldn't be close patrice o'neill couldn't be close to me he couldn't say hey lise great talk yesterday and you know what's great about him is that he was so real like he appreciates stuff like that his wife called me because they did an interview after his death he did an interview with me about him and i just said i what, now that he's dead, I have to pretend to like him? I go, he's a fucking asshole. I go, he's the worst. I go, there was no one meaner to open micers or anyone. I go, I'm so glad he's dead. Because I'm just real. His wife sent me an email saying, Patrice would have loved that so much because you were so real. And he, all he ever wanted people to be was real. So I think we were all just doing our best. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Take us through your first time on stage. What happened? Oh, my God, it was so great. Okay, here's what happened. I was doing, uh, my little nephew, Blaze, was born, and he's 26 <laughs> now, so it's 26 years ago, and I was driving up to see him at his new house, my brother's kid, um, in near West uh, Hartford, Connecticut. I hear an ad on the, on the radio for rent-to-DJs, and I go, well, you know what? <laughs> I always wanted to 
talk on the mic. I bet if I become a DJ first, I'll learn how to be good on the mic. And then I won't be nervous to do stand-up. Mm-hmm. So I start being a DJ. I start doing really well and making money for the company. And then all of a sudden, um, I end up going, okay, I see an ad for this, uh, this guy, Michael Jackson, who's teaching a comedy class in improv. They do the improv class. I do the improv show. I completely suck because I don't want to share any laughs. So I keep going for cheap laughs. I st- keep saying racial and, and, and uh, sexual things. And improv people hate that. I'm a no mm-hmm. but. They're a yes and. So I go on stage. I, uh, I end up convincing this Michael Jackson to do a stand-up comedy class with us. And my first time on stage, I remember two guys even though my routine was super clean, not insulting, because I just was talking about myself, two guys high-fived on the tape, and I go, I'm going to do this. I called in sick to my day job the next day, and I'm like, I'm a comic. Like, I just knew it from the first day. Then, of course, you have your hard shows, you're bombing, you're this, you're that. But that first time, I still have that VHS tape, and I go, I knew something was going to happen. And even if it was only the 1,000 a week headliner thing as my goal, I was like, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. And what was the first moment you said to yourself, I'm never doing anything else again that makes money but this? Oh, God. Um, I bucked for a layoff at my company where I had that day job at the time I started comedy. And um, because they were having a layoff, I got laid off. And I just started calling every booker, every crappy one night or every holiday and then had a comedy night and i was like this is what i'm doing that's it and since then i just had little day jobs and that's all i've been really and and thank god for the pam anderson roast because that's the one where everybody watched and all the tickets my tickets started selling because of her well let's talk about that for a second so before you got the call to do the roast there's no roast comedy clubs right do you remember who saw you first and said i'm gonna take a chance it wasn't comedy central i'll tell you that much it wasn't here's what happened it was a chevy chase roast what happened was the friars club for some reason loved me because i'm old-fashioned i'm an old school type of comic so they at the time were producing the chevy chase roast with um comedy central so Comedy Central was like, we don't know who she is. We're not having her on the roast. And they're like, well, we're co-producers, so we want her on. She's on. So I get the phone call. I'm in my little tiny studio apartment in the city. And I'm like, oh, my God, in two weeks, my life is going to change. And just so you know, when you get the call as a roaster, it's $15,000. At that time, since that's so long ago, I think it was twelve. Twelve. I just even kind of, that sticks out of my mind as so 12. So the point being is that this is an amount of money that Lisa Lampanelli had probably never made. Oh my God, no. I, it was the best. You're right. And I was like, I didn't have like, I mean, I owned an apartment. I wasn't destitute. I was an adult already. But I mean... I had to save up for the dress and I had to save up to the hair and makeup. Like there's so many expenses. How did you know that, okay, I should wear a dress for this? Because back then you saw the old roast, but you didn't know what the new roasts were supposed to be like. I think the Friars told me what they usually do because the Friars Club was so instrumental in getting me on that one. And I remember going to Bloomingdale's and being like, I know exactly what I want. And, you know, to get something like that in a big enough size, it's hard. But it ended up to work out great. I, I actually like that roast outfit the most of anything I've ever worn on a roast, I think. So take us through the dais. Yeah. You've never roasted anybody before, correct? Nothing. But the night before, I went to an open mic and I said, okay, you're Chevy Chase, you're Paul Schaefer, you're Lorraine Newman, you're whatever that bitch's name, Beverly D'Angelo. And I, you're Jeff, no, Jeff Ross wasn't even on that one. And I was just like, okay, so now pretend you're them and I'm going to do these jokes about you. I mean, it's up to the last minute. I don't do that anymore because I'm confident. This is why Lisa Lampanelli has become a household name and is a huge star. So Lisa gets the call. She's on a dais. Most of the comedians on the dais have roasted hundreds of times they've done friars club roasts over and over and over again so there's one rookie out of 10 people on that stage with cameras rolling now 
you're not expected as a rookie to go into a situation and blow everyone off the stage. You're expected to be okay. Well, hopefully she'll hold her own. Right. Maybe she'll do a good job. Right. But the way you rise in any business is by creating the unexpected, mm -hmm. by just blowing people the fuck away. And when you do a roast, and it's the same with Whitney Cummings when she mm -hmm. got the first call, you have to go up and you have to be as good as the best person or better right. or else you're going to disappear. It was literally the first time I felt like, I know it sounds cliche as this day and age, but freaking Alexander Hamilton. I was like, I'm not throwing away my shot. I was like, this is it. If I don't kill more than anyone, I will fade into obscurity and they're never going to give me a chance again. And what was worse was Chevy Chase was a dick. Everyone was bombing. And I was smart enough to say to Paul Schaefer, when you bring me up, introduce me as Friar Lisa Lampanelli so I get all those friars on my side first so they already like me. So if you notice when you watch it, he goes, Friar Lisa Lampanelli, and there's such a huge applause break because all these people like me already and they're on my side because there was a lot of friars there that night, 1,500 people, and has done this, this, and that, and he did a funny intro. And I was like, um, okay, I already got them on my side. I'm going out there. And Chevy was looking down. He was looking around. I go, this motherfucker is not distracting me. He's not going to make my one shot at a career fail. This fuck him. Like, I went up with the fire of fuck you, Chevy Chase, but not out, word, out loud. Tell us your opening line. Uh, thank you, Paul Schaefer. Looking at that head, it reminds me to go home and clean my dildo. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and Paul loves that. Paul always remembers that. So I got everybody. I had the best Kevin Meany jokes. They ended up getting cut out. But this was before Kevin came out of the closet. And I was like, Kevin Meany, you fat fuck. I go, look at you. I heard you got arrested when you had to rescue your wife and daughter at the airport. I go, wife and daughter? I thought you were a big fucking faggot. <laughs> you know, so it was great. So I, I just was so confident in every single joke. Oh, wait, I just thought of another joke I loved from that. I said, oh, it's good to see Rosie O'Donnell here. Oh, I'm sorry. That's Freddie Roman. <laughs> <laughs> just those little things i love those things so i i didn't even look at chevy chase because i was like you are not you are not distracting me from fame i said i'm making it and just in my gut i go i'm not throwing away my shot and I, then i just go okay i watch it the next week because they edit them fast and they edit them way down sometimes they edit these sets down to three minutes yeah they ended up putting me i had been on 10th they put me third because I did so well, and I said, thank you, God. So I did really well. Then what I found ironic is Dennis Leary was the next roast. He didn't ask me to do it. So I was like, oh, I guess that's over, but now at least I'm getting some recognition. I'm on Howard Stern. I'm doing this, that. Then they kept asking me for all the rest after that, and Dennis eventually asked me to do a Christmas special with him. But it's funny how, like, I was like, no one's getting in my way because you only get one chance. Back then, there weren't as many channels either, you know? So it's just like, you got to do it. I felt like such a gangster that night. I was like, you all suck compared to me. And that night, it wasn't even close. Yeah, it was horrible. You just decimated everyone. Some of the people you decimated were people who had done hundreds of roasts for the Friars Club. Yeah. What people don't understand is that it really, truly isn't as hard getting there as it is staying there. And so every year you're going on and there's that bar you went from the bar being down by the ground next to the dust yep. to the bar being at the top of the ceiling. And now the next roast you're on, there's nine other comedians who know that you're at the top of the mountain. And every single one of them, you know, as they're smiling and saying, <laughs> have a good set, are saying, I'm going to fucking blow That's her right. off the stage. That's right. And so every year, you know, you're the world champion and somebody's coming to try to knock you off your place and take the championship away from you. Mm. So the next time you do it. Right. It's uh, who was it? I think it was Foxworthy. So you see the comics there. Psychologically, you know, you have the mantle. But which comics are you thinking to yourself? This person could take the title away from me. I never think anyone can because I don't I don't think anyone thinks anyone can. 
if you, this business is so hard, you have to think you're the best. Like I bet every comic out there who makes it has thought they were the best even when they weren't that good. Because you almost have to believe in yourself so much that it's not even fake. Like if you ask me right now, who's the best comic who's ever lived? I go, me, what are you kidding me? Like, I'm not. Who's the second best comic that ever lived? Uh, I don't know. I don't think there's this close second. <laughs> I mean, no, like you have to really be that delusional. But when the roast, I was always very intimidated. I was never intimidated by Jeff Ross because he's such a great guy. Because I always knew he was great and it didn't bother me. Because I was like, oh, we're equals, you know? I was always knowing that Greg Giraldo was going to say something mean that would really get to me and I'd have to fucking tell him off later. I always knew that um, DePaulo would bring it. I love him, <laughs> though. I, I always loved those Italian, those the ethnic comics. But there was one roast, that Foxworthy one. There's those three guys. There was Colin Quinn, Geraldo, and uh, DePaulo. And then there's Cable Guy and the three blue-collar guys. So it was like this East versus West thing. So I was like, I wasn't scared of the three blue-collar guys because they're friends. I love those guys. But I was like, well, these three gangsters are going to be mean to me. So I said, I'm getting them. And I just like freaking went off. And I was just like, I have to look at everything like my last TV appearance. Like even with this play, every night is the last night I'm doing it. God forbid we get blown up. I have to do the best job ever. I make these bitches run lines before every show. Do you understand? I'm a, I'm a freaking fellow actor and I'm saying, okay, let's go. Being a big, big shot. Cause I'm like, it could be our last night to do this. So I think with comedy, I always look at my show as, it sounds corny, but every show's your last show. All right. Tell me the first time in a roast where you thought a performer did better than you. Did better? I always thought, I, I always thought Geraldo killed it, but he never, you know, this is all I've said before. Geraldo never on TV looked as good as he did in person. And it was such a shame because he would have been way more famous. He, there was something that didn't translate that he was fine and the jokes were good. But in the room, he was electrifying. I don't know what that was, that quality. So I always like, oh, he crushed it. How am I going to follow that? Then Jeff Ross, we're going to do it, motherfucker. How's he going to do that? <laughs> and so I'd go, geez. And then these fucking celebrities, these Betty Whites and these other ones who's there writing great jokes for and they practice. I'm like, Jesus Christ. But then I would always have to go last for the most part. So I'd have 30 pages of jokes instead of 15. So I had to work harder. Because if somebody touched on a subject or a joke that... Yeah, that you did, had. You've got to cross it off. It's the toughest spot going on last. Oh, and watch. Watch any roast. You will see me at the commercial breaks. They pull back. I'm with the pages, with the pen the whole time. Everybody else is partying and drinking and having fun. I am miserable just writing, going, what do I do? What do I do? So it's cool because the work pays off. But So I always thought, oh, those are the guys I have to not even beat, but just thank God be as good as. Anthony Jeselnik in the Trump roast was so freaking great. And my heart was so happy for him because it was his first thing. And I was just like, he gave me the best gift of all that night. Because did you ever see his stand-up? He was mean. I didn't know him. And I watched his tape when I was writing jokes about it. I go, oh, my God, he's so mean. I bet he's going to be so mean to me. And I was all scared. He gets up there and he goes, Lisa Lampanelli, you're cool. And then he kept going and did somebody else. And I go, that was somebody's way of giving me a gift tonight. Isn't that the coolest thing? And then he never did another one again, I don't think. Wow. Isn't that wild? I got a free pass. But I always believe that huggable and lovable wins the race. And yeah. when you make a decision as a comedian to have a presence and an aura on stage that isn't huggable and lovable, your chances of making it are slim and none, and he made it. But your chances of staying up there, it's harder and harder because you're not giving as much love out there right. and you have to find that niche. And don't get me wrong, there's tons of comedians who have longevity who weren't huggable and lovable, Dennis Leary being mm -hmm. one, yes, Bill yes. Hicks being another, mm -hmm. but it's hard, it's harder that way. I think also there's no need to stay at the top. If I... My ticket sales were best, I forget which year it was. It was the year I sold out Carnegie Hall and Radio City within two months of each other. Well, because what happened was I went on Stern to promote Carnegie Hall. It sold out so fast that Jeff Wills from Live Nation was like, we're leaving a lot of tickets on the table. Let's do Radio City. And this is where my low self-esteem comes from. I go to my mom and dad. We're sitting at dinner one night and I go, mom, they decided to do Radio City. She goes, oh, how are you going to sell all those tickets? And it sold out. But see, it keeps you humble. 6,000 seats. 732. 
6,730. I believe that's the number. And Carnegie Hall is how much? 3,500 about. That's 10,000 tickets in New York City from a person who started at Stand Up New York. Or way lower. Joker's Wild in New Haven, Connecticut was my first open mic. But I'm like, that was definitely the height. Then you got dips and you got where you just got to hang in there and go, why aren't I selling out Des Moines? Why aren't I selling out Pittsfield, Massachusetts? Why is there only two shows at the Beacon instead of 400 like Sebastian has? And you just go, because that's where I'm meant to be right now. I'm meant to be at this place. So you sell 10,000 seats Mm -hmm. in New York City. Mm -hmm. That's the height. Mm -hmm. Talk about the first time you noticed a dip. Oh, I was pissed. Okay. It really makes me mad still. And it actually led to a great thing. A Thursday night about six years ago, I was just doing a fill-in gig at this theater in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. 800 seats. I was like, oh, that's nothing. Well, Thursday night in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, I sold 600 seats. I walk out of there, and I am furious. And I said to my husband at the time, Jimmy, I said, fuck this shit. I can't sell no fucking 800 fucking tickets. I'm like, I'm retiring. <laughs> so I call my manager. I go, I'm retiring. She's like, why? I go, cause I have three houses. I have fucking Lexus. I don't need this pressure every day. If I can't sell out Pittsville, Massachusetts, <laughs> I'm going to kill myself. So I decide to retire the next day. I'm at our apartment in the city. I've turned on HBO and Carrie Fisher's doing a one woman show. And I go, Oh, I could do that. I said, now I want to put out there about my, weight thing, my, my boyfriend problems, my marriage problem, my love problems. So I'd start writing this one person show with Alan's Y Bell, which turns into this play and ticket sales and comedy have gotten better. So what makes me laugh is that thank God I hadn't, didn't sell out that place or I wouldn't be doing vulnerable work now that actually is funny and impacting people's lives. So it just cracks me up that those deepest moments, if you kind of get go to a more creative place about where do I need to be, like I needed to not sell those tickets. God forbid I sold out that rotten show in Pittsfield. I would have never done a play. I would never feel exposed to like audiences that are crying now because they're like, oh my God, you know, this really touched me. So I'm very lucky. I think I actually went back there since and I sold it out. <laughs> People don't get how Thursdays and Sundays, if you're not like a household name, Thursdays and Sundays are hard. You know, and but how lucky am I? Think about it. I've never played a club since that Pam Anderson roast. Never again. I've never walked into a comedy club except to watch a friend. I mean, that's pretty damn lucky. There's a lot of guys who still have to do those week long gigs in Lake Tahoe or awful places. Lucky. Fortunate. Fortunate means it involves work Um. also talking to somebody who during the roast when everybody's partying in the back is writing down their cards. I'm talking to somebody in the audience now Mm -hmm. of an empty theater that will be full tonight. I'm talking to somebody who makes her co-workers here run lines every night. Yeah. That's somebody who isn't lucky. Well, it's funny. I'm very driven, but by the right things, I think. It used... It was never for money. It was always... for, I don't even think this was for the right reasons. I always liked um, being, quote, somebody, but then that disappeared a few years ago, and now it's just service. Like, that's why this show is successful and got produced by someone and why it's going to continue next year, because it's of service. It's to make every person in the audience feel like they're not alone with this issue. So I'm like, I started approaching comedy that way, stand-up that way, too, as service, being... Um, not getting laughs, but giving if this person has a parent dying or this person has um, a disease or something that they could laugh and they could get something out of it. But when I'm looking to get something out of it, I'm a huge failure. Like I'll still kill, but I'll feel like a failure inside. But if I go, oh, that guy got cheered up because of me, that's my self-esteem now. So I think it's a healthier place for me at least. Take our audience through your process of how from cradle to grave you sat down to write to being up on a stage in a beautiful theater Mm -hmm. with sold out audiences. I was so lucky when I saw that Carrie Fisher HBO special and I lucky, lucky that I happened to be flipping past it. And I said to Jimmy at the time, my husband, I said, I'm not retiring. I'm writing a play. And he's like, Oy vey. So I'm lucky enough that I know Alan's Y bell from the friars, call him up and say, Alan, He had written Billy Crystal's show with him, 700 Sundays, and he said, I'd love to work with you on this. And at the time, it was going to be a one-person show about food, eating, 
and men because they're all intertwined. So he, we started writing and it's basically Alan asking really hard questions and history and us writing it completely seriously because he goes, trust me, the laughs will come. You're funny, but we have to write the truth first. Best advice ever. We write this one person show. It ends up really funny, but really emotional. I start workshopping around the country. It's getting all standing O's. My father starts to have the hospice thing. I said, oh boy, I'm not interested in anything anymore except my dad. I quit everything for about six months. And then when I came back after my dad died, I'm like, that one person shows good, but it doesn't say everything I want to. And I go, it's going to be better if I include other types of women with other food issues. So the anorexic, the girl who can't gain weight, the girl who's happy fat, and then myself. So I wrote it into a play and lucky enough, I took my part of the one person show that was about food, wrote these three other characters, wrote monologues for each of us, then conversation. And I was just lucky enough to attract dramaturgs and people from Yale School of Drama who I had studied with a little bit there for six weeks and go, oh, I can actually do a play. So now I think it's really resonating because all women are represented in it, not just me. But that's my journey was one person show, then play, then polish it up and make it really sing. Awesome. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself. to Pittsfield, Massachusetts, those (laughs) mother effers. I'm telling you, that's the only disappointment. But see how it ends up to never be a disappointment. I was a little disappointed when my show with Jim Carrey didn't. We got bought by HBO. We had this contract, the thing built into the contract where if they didn't make the pilot, they had to pay us. Pay or play. Which, guess what? You're got to be pretty bad when somebody pays you not to be on TV. That's what I would always goof on Geraldo. I'd go, they pay you not to be on TV. But I think at the time I was a little sad, but then I remember going, oh, that gives me more time for, and I forget what else it was. Oh, no, it was planning my wedding, which was the best. There's only two things in my life I've loved every minute of. Well, three things. Taking care of my dad, um, planning my wedding, even though I'm divorced, and doing this play. There's nothing else I've loved every minute of. So I think the Jim Carrey thing was a little disappointing because they're like, oh, I want to have a TV show on HBO. But then it was like, oh, but I have time to plan my wedding. I've always kind of made it into something I, I had fun doing. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town in Connecticut or wherever mm-hmm. it is to be able to get to the highest levels of your profession? I mean, two things I operate on is... It sounds corny, but fear not. Because what's the worst thing that can happen? Think about it. Like if I had done that open mic and I completely sucked and quit, eh, so. If I sold out Radio City and whatever the one was, Radio City and Carnegie Hall, and then I, I'm a loser and don't sell any tickets anymore, eh, at least I did that. If I wrote a play and no one ever produced it, say the WP was like, we hate your show, it's not going up, eh, so I wrote a play then what's always ask yourself what's the worst that can happen but then unlike other people do it anyway because a lot of people go oh that's the worst thing that i'm not doing it who cares we're gonna die just do it who cares nothing bad can happen to you lisa lampanelli you are a force yes honey this has been so amazing thanks for everything man As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.